I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Santa Ono. Hello, Dr. Ono, and welcome to the uh, museum's podcast. Um, Now, you are not only a biologist, you are also the president of UBC, so it's extra special to have you here today. Uh, Now, you're a biologist and an immunologist. Um, How would you explain those fields? Well, I just want to start off and uh, just maybe uh, say that I was attracted to the field of biology when I was a junior high school, middle school, and high school student. Uh, I was uh, at that time living in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, I decided to become a biologist because at that time, in the late 70s uh, and uh, 1980, when I graduated from high school, all the rage was recombinant DNA technology and molecular biology. And uh, a book had been written by a relatively recent recipient of the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, Jim Watson, called The Double Helix. And so I'm a biologist in that I was attracted to the field of biology, not in thinking about, say, classification of species or evolutionary theory, but I was attracted to this new field of molecular biologist. Uh, Later on in my career, I decided to focus on the black box of how the immune system works. And so I'm what's called a molecular immunologist, trying to understand how the body can differentiate uh, one's own self, one's own cells from those that have uh, perhaps turned into cancer cells or have been infected with virus. And so my research really focus on molecular immunology, the genes and the molecules that uh, are really central to how the immune system works. That's really cool. That's something I hadn't thought about, but it, it, does, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> so you mentioned you uh, went to school in Baltimore. Um, what else uh, can you explain about your professional background? Uh, where did you study? Where did you work? Well, I studied first at University of Chicago. I chose it because uh, one of the authors of the book, The Double Helix, one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize in determining the structure, three-dimensional structure of DNA, was Jim Watson. And he had studied at the University of Chicago. So I went there. And after my uh, undergraduate degree in biology at University of Chicago, I went to graduate school at McGill University in Montreal fellowship, a postdoctoral fellowship in biochemistry and molecular biology uh, at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so that was really uh, my education. Wonderful. Is that why you've made the bow tie your signature piece? Because it looks like a double helix? No, the reason why I I wear a bow tie often is that uh, when I was president of the University of Cincinnati, I was invited to meet with uh, the members of a fraternity at that university, and they presented me with a bow tie. A lot of fraternity boys, as they call them in the US, wear bow ties. And I was very embarrassed that I didn't know how to tie a bow tie. 
as opposed to a traditional tie. And so I started wearing bow ties regularly so that I could learn and practice how to tie a bow tie. And uh, after a while, I only wore bow ties. And so that was became sort of a signature that people associated with me. <laughs> Great. I have no idea how to tie a bow tie. I can barely tie a regular tie. Um, now, one thing I've noticed uh, with many people is that most career paths uh, tend to be a bit circuitous. Um, people face setbacks or change direction uh, halfway through. Um, I mean, you've changed from uh, being purely a scientist to being a university administrator. Uh, but have you faced any of these uh, roundabout career courses? Well, setbacks occur all the time. It's part of being an experimental scientist, being an experimental biologist. Sometimes an entire year, year will go by where all of the experiments will fail. And that especially happens if you're the, at the cutting edge of inquiry, when you're still trying to develop uh, techniques and processes. Um, as you know, there are many things that are currently standardized you can uh, do all kinds of things now in an automated way. But in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, a lot of that was not standardized. So how to actually clone a gene, uh, how to use polymerase chain reaction, that didn't, e didn't even exist when I was, say, a student. Um, how to sequence DNA, the, the process and technology is completely uh, different now. It's automated. You now send a sample to to a company, and you get the the sequence uh, to to appear in in a very short period of time. It used to be that you have to do that with a very cumbersome chemical set of chemical reactions uh, that were not very precise, and so it took a long time to determine the uh, nucleotide sequence of a gene. So uh, things have changed, and and because uh, if you're if you're in the early days of a field, um, things fail all the time. Um, in terms of change of direction, I've had a couple of changes of direction. I've always been a molecular immunologist, uh, but I initially focused on the very fundamental question of what part of the genome is responsible for the fact that uh, juvenile or type one diabetes runs in families. And, uh, and so initially I was focused on trying to find these genes and we found them. They were on the short arm of chromosome six. We were using a rat system and we located part of the genome that encodes a set of genes called the major histocompatibility complex genes. There are a number of genes that determine, determine the success or failure of tissue transplants. Um, and um, those were the genes and their products that were uh, critical to determining whether or not diabetes runs in your family. So I began focusing on that, uh, worked on that for several years, but then tried to understand these particular genes and how they're controlled and regulated uh, in a more precise way. So I shifted towards studying gene regulation mammalian cells and worked on that for about a decade. And I started getting interested in sort of inflammation and when inflammation occurs in the eye, and how that affects vision and why it might contribute to leading causes of blindness. So, uh, so there are sort of chapters in my scientific career where, to your point, um, the focus of my research shifted, still based upon molecular immunology. Great. Um, would you consider those to be your proudest discoveries? 
I would say that uh, my proudest discoveries would be summarized to one, identifying a set of genes that determine uh, susceptibility and resistance to diabetes. That's one of my proudest achievements. Also proud to have uh, cloned a gene that I had, uh, had known before and so discovered a gene that uh, is a fascinating uh, gene that encodes a product that seems to be important in a number of important processes such as uh, the duration of the immune response. Uh, it seems to be involved in Parkinson's disease. Um, seems to be important in something called the pathway. Um, and, and so um, I'm uh, proud of the discovery of that gene called NFX1. Um, I'm proud of um, a couple of other discoveries. One is that um, there's a condition that uh, people develop where they have all these tumors arise in their body. And these are tumors of, of the fat tissue, adipose tissue. These are called lipomas. And we were able to show that a particular gene, when it has a, a disruption in what we call this carboxy terminus or the, the end of the protein, that that is uh, responsible for this uh, uh, development of lipomas uh, throughout your body. Uh, so I'm proud of that. And more generally, in, in looking at uh, the last chapter of my laboratory's research on understanding uh, the cell and molecular basis of macular degeneration. Uh, we're proud of the fact that we've been able to find markers that seem to help predict um, whether you'll develop AMD or age-related macular degeneration and how quickly it might uh, develop in a particular individual. So we're trying to see whether that might have diagnostic uh, value uh, and uh, might be of clinical relevance. And so just to clarify, that's uh, eyesight that deteriorates with age, right? That's right. It's age-related macular degeneration. So as you get older, um, it's the, the most common uh, basis for blindness or near blindness uh, in the Western world. And it's macular degeneration in that if you look at the back of your eye, you think your, your eye might be a, a, an old-fashioned camera where you have a lens um, and uh, at the back of the eye, it's sort of like the film used to be, the sensor, the photoreceptor cells are there. And there's a very specific part of the retina called the macula, uh, which has exquisite ability to detect um, light and color and uh, transmit that through the optic nerve to your brain. Macular degeneration is when you start to lose those photoreceptor cells, they de degenerate, and it seems to have an immune pathology. And, and so um, that's what AMD or age-related macular degeneration is. That's something I, I guess uh, many of us will have to deal with as we get older, so uh, very relevant to all of us. <laughs> is your lab still active without you? I, I assume running a big university takes up most of your time. It does. And so the, my laboratory is still active. I try to stay in touch with key individuals in a very small laboratory on a regular basis. Uh, it's not as active as it used to be when it was very large. Um, you're absolutely right that I have to spend much more time worrying about running the university than, than my own laboratory. But 
my dream and my hope is that one day when I retire from the presidency of UBC, that I may be able to go back to my lab and, and do the research myself again. Uh, I'm curious, um, and you can either answer on behalf of your lab or yourself uh, as head of the university. Um, what's taking up most of your time right now? Well, right now, over the past 18 months or so, uh, the primary focus has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, as you know, um, over a period of a few days, uh, all universities and many schools had to pivot to remote instruction. So um, there have been many, many meetings focused on safety on campus, uh, when it might be safe to resume uh, research activities in laboratories such as mine, and thinking about what we're going to do um, when we uh, come back to campus in September. As you know, the pandemic is something that's in flux. Um, there are variants that are arising. Um, there's uh, heterogeneity, differences in vaccination rates in different parts of the world. Uh, we have a pretty high vaccination rate here in British Columbia and in Canada, but we have international students that come to the university uh, that come from nations with, with much uh, uh, lower rates of vaccina vaccination. We have to think about what we're gonna do when they arrive, um, how we're gonna try to ensure that when the numbers of students on campus are nearing what is normal, how we can ensure the safety, not only those students, but also the faculties and staff at the university. So there's the, the top preoccupation right now. And I can say that as a staff member, um, I, I've constantly felt that uh, UBC has erred on the side of caution and valued our safety uh, very, very highly. So thank you. What's amazing is that if you look at universities our size, for example, Ohio State University or the University of Central Florida or the University of Michigan, which is actually smaller than UBC, we've had dozens of cases uh, where those universities have uh, tens of thousands of cases. And so uh, we have done pretty well. Uh, we've had 6,000 students in residence and uh, just a hand, handful of cases uh, there. And so um, you know, and hopefully the very high vaccination rate uh, of our um, students from British Columbia and Canada uh, will will make it uh, uh, protective of for for uh, students and faculty once they come back to campus. And force, uh, we have to think about how we can vaccinate international students that that may not have been vaccinated uh, when they arrive, and all those things are being planned as we speak. That's uh, quite quite the sharp pivot in day-to-day in, uh, -day work. Now, I usually ask our scientists about um, any field stories that they have. Um, but in your case, you're doing most of your work in a lab or in, in conference, uh, conference rooms. Um, I do find that no matter what the workplace is, uh, fun things always happen that are not really related to the work, but do give us good stories. Uh, do you have any fun lab stories or uh, presidential stories that you care to share? Well, I won't talk about uh, something that happened uh, when I was a young researcher. Um, I don't know if you've ever visualized DNA fragments on an agarose. You use a intercalating dye called ethidium bromide, and you put the agarose gel uh, onto uh, a UV light. Um, and um, the intercalating dye actually fluoresces uh, when it's uh, hit by the UV light. And you've washed it off, the dye off of the gel. So it, it only 
uh, is attached to the nucleic acid, the DNA or the RNA that's in the gel. And it was a way of visualizing where the DNA is and how large it is in terms of molecular weight. And so, um, the, as you probably know, UV light is very dangerous. Um, and it's much stronger in a UV box than if you were look, to look into the sky. And you can actually burn cornea. It's <laughs> really funny because I'm an eye researcher studying blindness. But when I was a young researcher, I looked at the UV box a little bit too long without protection. Everything seemed fine, but maybe a few hours later, my eyes started to tingle a little bit. Uh, I fell asleep, and in the, in the morning, I woke up, and my eyes were sealed shut. Um, and what happened, I had ulcerated my cornea, and uh, pus was developing, and it sealed my eyelids together. So that's kind of my field story or war story, if you will, of being a scientist. Uh, fortunately, it was a, just a surface ulceration, and my corneal epithelial cells grew back. And uh, as you see, my eyes are fine. Uh, but I learned uh, on that uh, day and the next day that um, if you have a, a UV source, you better protect your eyes. That's great advice and a, a good reminder for me to get better sunglasses. <laughs> I'm curious, what's your favorite or, or the most exciting part of your work uh, that really gets you up in the morning or got you up in the morning? <laughs> well, you know, even today, when, when I think about the research uh, that's underway, you know, one of the projects that we're working on in my laboratory uh, as we speak is trying to understand uh, how uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 enters into cells, how it replicates and infects the whole body. Most people, because we all wear non-medical masks, mm -hmm. think that the, the way the virus gets into to our body is through the nose, through the mouth, through respiration. It's a communicable disease on COVID-19. Uh, but uh, uh, the mucosal tissue, which is on the surface of the eye and the whites of the eye, it's a tissue called conjunctiva, uh, a tissue that I've studied very similar to the mucosal tissue in your nose, your nasal sinus, and your lungs. Um, and, and, and so um, there are two key receptors for the virus that causes COVID-19. And one of the interesting findings is that uh, the virus will uh, either more efficiently or less efficiently infect the person depending upon the immune status of that individual, whether there's inflammation, occurring within the lung or the sinus. And it, it turns out perhaps even in the surface of the eye. So one of the projects we're working on right now, because it's, there's intense interest in how the virus infects an individual, is uh, what happens in the surface of the eye. And uh, can you modulate the level of expression of the receptors for the virus in the conjunctiva in such a way that you diminish the chance of systemic infection by the virus. And so um, that gets me up uh, when I think about my laboratory uh, right now. And it's kind of interesting because uh, when you see that there's differences in infection on the surface of the eye, depending upon its state of, of immunity or inflammation, then you can ask all kinds of mechanist, mechanistic questions about what is it about the inflamed eye that might actually blunt infection and infectivity by the virus and may lead to 
uh, small molecules that you can use that you could probably aerosolize into the lung or the nose or put in drops in the eye that might interfere uh, with infection by SARS-CoV-2. So that's what I think about these days. Interesting. I wouldn't have put together the, the connection between eyes and COVID-19. Uh, but now that you explain it like that, that makes total sense. But it's a continuum of the mucosal tissue. So whether the virus first penetrates the mucosal tissue in the conjunctiva or the nasal sinus or in the lungs, it can travel because it infects the cell, multiplies, and then infects nearby uh, mucosal epithelium. It can actually travel throughout. And that's why disease gets more and more severe with time unless uh, it, there's an intervention. Okay, so I'm going to ask the opposite question. Um, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Well, um, I would say as a scientist, the most challenging part of my work is to uh, uh, compete for funding to, to fund the research. And I think that's probably true for every scientist and researcher in the world. Is It's uh, incredibly competitive to, to get funding uh, to support your research. Um, I would say, but nevertheless, that pales compared to having to deal with how to manage a pandemic for an entire university the size of UBC. Um, and it pales compared to some uh, you know, existential uh, changes that we have to face as institutions, as society, for example, climate change and the threat that that uh, places um, our very existence uh, in jeopardy. So um, those things keep me up at night. Um, as you can see from the, the heat dome that we experienced a few weeks ago that we might experience again next week, uh, if you can uh, see all of the um, disasters that are occurring around the world, for example, flooding, uh, extreme temperatures, both cold and hot, um, this is something that we have to solve uh, soon before it's too late. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the pandemic, um, how have you been uh, managing with it? How have you been unwinding? Well, one of the things I love to do more than anything else is to play my cello. And if you look on social media, or Google search hashtag songs of comfort in my name, you'll see a whole series of videos. Some of them are me playing the cello, them are UBC students playing the cello, some other friends from the world uh, who play some other instrument, uh, not all, only cello. Um, some of them are renowned, world-renowned artists. Some of them are symphony musicians. And so I've, I've been dealing with it personally by playing and listening to music, playing the cello and listening to music. And, and I've been trying to uh, share the therapeutic effect of listening to and, and, and participating in the making of music, uh, in, in, in helping one manage the stresses of dealing with a pandemic or, or some other. That's how I've been dealing with it. Wonderful. Sounds very healthy. <laughs> now, I'm curious, um, do you identify as belonging to any uh, underrepresented communities in science? And uh, if so, do you feel like that's impacted your studies in any way? Well, it may surprise you, but um, as an Asian, as a BIPOC faculty member, uh, Asians are the most underrepresented ethnicity among university presidents uh, in the world and in North America as well. I was the very first Asian uh, president of a university in the state of Ohio. I think I'm currently one of two Asian presidents of a major research university in Canada. So I'm very underrepresented. Um, 
I can tell you that when I was an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, I went to a major award ceremony for an award called the Passano Award. And uh, um, it was a wonderful function. My wife and I went. There were only two Asian faculty in a room with hundreds of faculty members from Johns Hopkins University. So I very old. Um, and so, yes, over the past several decades, um, I've often felt um, unique. And um, fortunately, I've had role models and mentors that have been supportive of me. But I do understand um, the challenges of BIPOC faculty and students, and, and uh, I care about them, and I, I know how they feel when they feel not fully included or fully embraced by education institution. That's uh, quite a, a, a small percentage um, in that Johns Hopkins uh, conference that you're talking about. Um, and I didn't know that um, Asian U- university uh, presidents were the absolute minority. Interesting. I'm curious, uh, do you find that iScience is uh, a very welcoming field or is it a little more insular and um, uh, cliquey? Well, you know, I'm fortunate in that uh, I have um, worked in very powerful places in visual vision sciences and ophthalmology um, and also in immunology. I mean, um, when I was a postdoctoral fellow in biochemistry and molecular biology at Harvard University, my uh, mentor supervisor was Jack Strominger, who won the Lasker Award, was a member of the National Academy of Science and would go on to win the Japan prize, for example. So um, I didn't really feel, um, you know, in in any kind of disadvantage because I was in a very powerful place uh, in one of the world centers for molecular biology. I then went to Johns Hopkins and I was at vision at the Johns Hopkins Asthma and Allergy Center, which was considered to be one of the two or three great world centers for that kind of research. And subsequently, as a faculty member at, at Harvard, I was at the largest um, vision research uh, um, center um, in, in the United States. And then when I become a professor at University College London and Moorfields Eye Hospital, which is considered by many to be the Mecca, the largest research center in the world in vision research. So I can say that, um, no, I haven't really felt in any way disadvantaged. It's like, well, probably. In, I guess I was fortunate to be in major centers uh, where a large proportion of the clique existed. Um, and so I can imagine that if I was elsewhere, uh, and by the way, UBC also has a very, very distinguished uh, history in, in vision research and, and ophthalmology. So I think if, if I wasn't at a major center that I can imagine being uh, less, um, uh, you know, in a place with the critical mass of, um, of discoveries and, and scientific conversations. Um, but I've been fortunate that, that I've always been in, in major, major centers where um, I guess I've been part of the clique. That, yeah, so it sounds like it's, um, it, uh, they look after their own. <laughs> I think it's like any field, you know, if, if yeah. you're at a, at a major center, you have an advantage. Um, you know, there, there's a whole network of individuals who've collaborated, who have published together, who have gone through the same laboratories. If you're in that kind of situation, you manage over being um, perhaps on your own or gone through a smaller laboratory where 
Um, you can still excel, but it may not be as easy as being within, as you say, a click. Now, if you've inspired anyone uh, to follow in your footsteps and go into ophthalmology, or as I very clumsily put it, eye science, um, what background or courses or, or experience uh, would you recommend they pursue? Well, I first want to say that I'm very, very proud and very lucky to be able to say that uh, many of my former students, postdoctoral fellows, graduate students have gone on to pretty amazing careers. Um, you know, I said that I started my career as a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University um, in the laboratory of Jack Strominger. That uh, program has evolved and it, there's a, a major center for stem cell biology uh, at Harvard University. And one of my early graduate students, Paolo Arlotta, uh, is a, a world leader in the field of organoids and, and able to create many organs in a Petri dish. And if you look at the Harvard uh, Stem Cell Biology Group. Uh, she is a full professor already there and very highly cited in her own right. And she was the one who actually did the work with transgenic mice that identified the gene alteration that is responsible for lipomas. And so she's one example of somebody who came out of my lab and really become an independent scientist in her own right. Uh, one of my very early uh, a graduate student, Sarki Abdul Qadir, is, uh, has now has an endowed chair, and he's he's been a professor at Vanderbilt and uh, other great institutions. Others are are department chairs, and uh, actually, I think seven of my trainees have gone on to become presidents of universities in their own right. So, um, so I'm really proud of of products of my laboratory and people who've worked with me in an, in an administration. Um, your question was. Uh, what would I recommend to inspire, say, future uh, budding scientists or administrators? Um, I, I think that um, you know, what I would say is just to follow your heart um, and uh, do the kind of experiments, do the kind of science that, uh, um, number one, is different perhaps than what other people are doing. Uh, there'll be lots of failures, as I said, lots of things that don't work because you're in a very small group of people trying to get something to work. But um, that's where the action is, to be at, at the cutting edge, doing things that, that are not routine. Um, and I would also encourage people to talk to uh, scientists or, or, or non-scientists or people from completely different fields, engineers, mathematicians, um, to talk to them about their ideas and to try to figure out a way that you might be able to merge fields to solve problems uh, in a way that they haven't been solved uh, before. Um, that's where the true innovation occurs at the interface between disciplines. So I would encourage budding scientists to reach out to different fields, to learn something continuously new, uh, and to, uh, to be bold and courageous to be able to uh, look at problems in, in, in new ways uh, that may not be easy, but might uh, really facilitate um, uncovering something in the black box of knowledge that has never been seen before. That's where uh, the most exciting things happen in a career in science. Absolutely. I've heard that a few times from other scientists as well, that um, you really want to exist at the center of multiple Venn diagrams. Um, 
Yeah. And it sounds like you're very proud of the products of your laboratories, not only the uh, vaccines and discoveries, but also uh, the people and the scientists who have come out of them. <laughs> I'm curious, what do you consider to have been the, uh, the most important course that you took uh, or the most pivotal course that you took in your uh, academic career? Well, you know, there is a, a great evolutionary biologist uh, that you might have heard of called, I think, Richard Lewontin. And uh, when I was at the University of Chicago, there was a great evolutionary biologist called Jack Hubby. Um, back then, they were able to identify differences in gene products by gel electrophoresis. It would be considered primitive technology today. I took a course with Jack Hubby, and I bring him up because he just died several months ago. And uh, it, it was his course and another course, there was a pair, a couple of developmental biologists at the University of Chicago, Aaron Moscona and, and Malcolm Moscona. I took their developmental biology course at, at Chicago. So Jack Hubby, Aaron and Malcolm Moscona uh, were towering figures in their fields of developmental biology and evolutionary biology. You asked me to talk about one course, I'll talk about a third course. There was someone called uh, Ira Wool, who um, at that time, uh, he had a laboratory in, uh, in the Cummings Life Sciences Center at the University of Chicago. And he was the world authority at the time of the structure of ribosomes. And, you know, it was, it was remarkable what he was able to figure out at the University of British Columbia, we're very proud of a, a scientist called Gobind Karana, who won a Nobel Prize. And he went from UBC to the University of Wisconsin and eventually to MIT. And uh, he made multiple fundamental discoveries to molecular biology, understanding uh, the triplet codon and how transfer RNA uh, recognizes a codon within the messenger RNA ultimately encoded within the DNA of a gene. And uh, uh, so, so uh, the reason why I bring up Corona and the triplet codon, Nuremberg and, and all that, is that all that is made possible by this massive complex, multi-subunit complex of a ribosome. And Ira Wool uh, uh, was determining the structure of the ribosome. And, and, and that's really the scaffold via which uh, you have it reading uh, um, the uh, um, the uh, messenger RNA. And the, the tRNAs are actually coming in to different sites within the ribosome, creating the peptide bond. Um, and that, that was happening while I was an undergraduate uh, at the University of Chicago. And he was showing us pictures of how translation works. Um, and uh, it, it was magical. And that, that's why I often talk about the black box. You know, um, before all of that was understood at the molecular level, uh, there were all kinds of hypotheses and theories about what was the genetic information, how were proteins made. But to be able to have a front row seat and to learn in a class how you go about hypothesis and developing experiments and gathering the data so you can actually figure out for the world and leave as a legacy to the world forever, the basic um, and concrete discovery of how genetic information is uh, read by a cell's machinery 
and how proteins are made is still in me, I don't know about you, uh, creates goosebumps. I still have chills thinking about how you go from a black box to actually understanding how things work. And you might say that's just fundamental knowledge. You know, now we know how it works, who cares? Well, that fundamental knowledge is still important for things like how do you create a COVID vaccine? It's still important for understanding why certain people develop certain kinds of cancers, because in some cases, it's that understanding about specific pieces of information, like what does the cap structure on the messenger RNA do? And, and could a disruption in that machinery result in the formation of a cancer? The work of Malcolm Sonnenberg at McGill University actually shows that that fundamental knowledge, that level of understanding really is necessary to understand even more complex processes. It must have been very special to have met those people and, and been able to learn from them. For sure, for sure, absolutely. And extra special um, to have recognized it at, at the time that it was a special occurrence. Very often, I find that um, when something really life-changing like that occurs, you only realize it after the fact. Um, but it seemed like you were aware in real time. It was magical. That's why I went into molecular biology at the time. Now, um, you've also been uh, an inspirational figure to many people. Like you said, you've had many uh, grad students come and go. Uh, what were you looking for when you were selecting your grad students? Well, you know, it's difficult. Uh, at my prime, many people would be applying to, to join my laboratory at the same time. And uh, the universities that I've been fortunate to work are among the most prestigious in the world. So there's no lack of supply of brilliant uh, people who apply to work with uh, you and your laboratory. Um, and you can be very selective and you can choose based upon things such as grades and uh, uh, you know, standardized test results. And those are things that are not very important uh, when I try to choose someone for my group. Um, I try to spend time with uh, prospective applicants and talk to them and, and ask them probing questions about the research that they had already carried out uh, in the case of a graduate student. What did you do as an undergraduate? What kinds of experiments did you, did you try to, uh, to uh, um, carry through? And what were your challenges, like you said? So I, I, I tried to probe uh, their persistence, their grit. I tried to look for evidence of originality and innovation. Um, I look for passion. And uh, so those are the things that you can't teach. Mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can take somebody into the laboratory and show them a procedure and they can carry out the procedure and get results. But when you look for somebody to join your group, you're looking for somebody that's gonna be an intellectual peer, somebody who's actually gonna contribute, not just in terms technically, uh, in generating data, but actually thinking about new ways of thinking or you know, addressing your, your, your research area. So that's what I look for. I look for originality, innovation, uh, grit, uh, bold, uh, courage. Those are the things that I look for. You'd certainly need a lot of grit, uh, especially in those early days when, like you said, everything was a lot more um, manual and uh, you'd have a lot more uh, failure rate <laughs> in some of your experiments. I'm curious. Um, so th 
that was discussing the uh, beginning of many people's careers. But what about at the end of your career? What would you like to be your legacy? Well, you know, I've been focusing quite a bit on running universities. And uh, I'm very fortunate to be at one of the world's great universities at UBC, usually ranked in the top 35 universities in the world now, sometimes even higher. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, I obviously am I'm trying to ensure that UBC remains one of those great uh, globally recognized institutions. Um, in terms of my legacy, um, universities are also communities. And, and you did mention, or you did ask what it felt like to be underrepresented as a leader, as a scientist. And, you know, addressing the history of how institutions were created, how uh, certain individuals have inherently privilege uh, and others are at disadvantage because perhaps um, they're underrepresented historically within the institution. Um, those are some of the things that we're trying to address. We're trying to, to think about how do indigenous how do indigenous faculty feel? How do black students and faculty and staff feel at the university? Uh, and what can we do so that everyone, regardless of the, the color of their skin, feels like they are welcome and included in the mission of what we do as an institution. Um, I hope that uh, the things that we're doing at UBC, that the, that the legacy of that work, which is not mine, which is our work, and there's so many people that are working on this, will, be, will lead to an institution that's more welcoming and uh, uh, really can benefit from the diversity of people that make up UBC. Wonderful. It's a big task, but um, I'm glad you're taking it on as a, a top priority. My final question. Uh, I noticed that uh, the world is changing very, very quickly, and the field that a person enters uh, at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable at the end of their career. Uh, you've already mentioned uh, the increased uh, mechanization of your scientific field. Um, but where do you see your career going in the future? And what advice would you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes that are coming down the pipe? When I was uh, taking my very first sabbatical and only sabbatical as a scientist, it was uh, when I became an associate professor at Harvard University. Um, and um, I had already started to transition into essentially managing the laboratory with a group um, looking at data on a, on a weekly basis, asking questions, helping to evaluate data, as opposed to actually doing the hands-on experiments. In that sabbatical, I actually went into the laboratory of uh, a recent Nobel Prize winner, Tasuka Honjo, who uh, ran a very large laboratory, still runs a large laboratory at Kyoto University in Japan. And it was a joy for me to regress and to actually get my hands dirty again and start to work on new technologies that I could learn from his laboratory. Um, it was a joy to be part of the team again, uh, to, uh, to celebrate our, our successes and failures in the laboratory, um, to enjoy life together with uh, graduate students and postdoctoral fellows. I think when I retire from being president of UBC, I hope I can do that again. I hope I can actually take time off and do a sabbatical, my second sabbatical in somebody else's laboratory. I hope someone will accept me, will allow me to get my hands dirty again, where I'll, I'll learn something 
completely new. Uh, I, I would love that to be my future. Great. Uh, but where do you see ophthalmology in, in, in general going? Well, there still are unsolved issues. Uh, you know, even with the identification of a number of uh, mutations that are the basis of inherited eye diseases, um, and even with uh, the considerable investment in trying to replace those faulty genes with healthy genes, uh, it's still not straightforward. Even with the advent of CRISPR-Cas technology, it's not straightforward to take someone who is blind, either from birth or because of degeneration, and to correct those defects. There are lots of great groups that are working on it, and uh, I keep thinking it's around the corner, but I've been thinking that for about 15 years. So um, there's a lot of work still to be done um, to you know, bring back sight to people who've lost it, to prevent blindness and people who are destined to become blind. Okay. Wonderful. It's good to know that there's um, a lot of room for growth uh, for young students. Uh, sometimes I know looking at a field, it can feel like all this, uh, those discoveries have been made, but it sounds like there's more. There's, there's endless opportunity to understand uh, the magic and mysteries of life. Well, uh, Dr. Ono, those are all the questions I have for today. Uh, is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Did, uh, did I miss anything? <laughs> No, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. And to those who are listening, if there's anything I can do to be of service uh, to, to you, especially if you're a young budding scientist, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Uh, you're entering a tremendous profession. It's an honor and privilege to be a scientist. Uh, I can say that I love being president of a university, but I love being a scientist even more. So um, uh, just remain persistent and enjoy uh, your career. Uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful to try to figure out uh, how things work and to ask questions where there are no answers yet today and to be involved in, in for the very first time, seeing something that nobody else has seen before. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.